Alright, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds because even though it did not share the pains we share, that American ideal friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning buzz. All right, Brendan. So it's getting late here on uh, Tuesday, February fifteenth. We have uh, we successfully put this episode off long enough, um, and we're also running out of excuses. But uh, what are we talking about this week? Yeah, it's frustrating because this is an episode that we are really excited for uh, the topics to talk about, but we've, we've tried to record this, I mean, at least five or six times and just one thing you or I or the other have, haven't been able to, to make it happen. So we're going to try to just get it done here. One take, we'll see how it goes, but we, we wanted to get this out there. So uh, a few weeks ago, Brian Flores, former head coach of Miami Dolphins, former assistant coach of the New England Patriots filed a bombshell lawsuit um, alleging racial discrimination and unfair hiring practices in against the National Football League NFL. Uh, that was news in and of itself. And as soon as that came down, I, I texted you being like, yo, we should talk about that. Then shortly after that, Justice Breyer announced his retirement from the Supreme Court. Um, that triggered uh, President Biden, you know, he'll have the opportunity to nominate a new justice to the Supreme Court which brought back, you know, his campaign promise to nominate a black woman to the Supreme Court. And there was an outcry uh, against about that. And then with a, a week later, the Supreme Court said that they were going to hear the affirmative action cases against Harvard University and North Carolina. And so all of these things, to me, seem to kind of all be like, different sides of the, the same shape here, different sides of like the same issue of, of affirmative action and the role of affirmative action in remedying past racial discrimination in our country. And while they don't all fit together perfectly, like thematically, I do think they fit together. And I think they're all fascinating topics on their own and really excited to try to find like the unifying threads, if there are any between these three, you know, at first very different uh, issues. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, um, uh, I, I think you said it right. I've been mulling this over now. I've had quite a few weeks to mull it over. And I think I, I think it's actually been nice in a little bit of a way that, that some of my gut reactions I've now been able to do a little bit more research on and and not just been guided by my own intuitive sense of what's going on. But, uh, yeah, where do you, where do you want to start? Well, Ricky, I want to start where we always start by reminding everyone that this podcast is brought to you by the hardworking craftsmen over at Cannon Hill Woodworking. You know, they've been building handcrafted high-end custom tables and desks in Boston since 2018. And Ricky, if you have forgotten where we started, our listeners may have forgotten. So we want to remind them, you know, that's Cannon with two ends. You can check them out on Instagram. You can visit them online at www.cannonhillwood.com. Um, you know, let them know that that we sent you, that we're still alive, they're still alive, and make sure you're, if you're in the market for a, a high-end uh, piece of furniture, give those guys a shout. Definitely. Definitely. All right. With that said, let, let, let's talk Brian Flores. So 
we know Brian Flores up here in New England as the former Patriots, the def- defensive coach, uh, and was you know, all around kind of a, a stud assistant coach for us here, helped, helped us win uh, a couple of Super Bowls in different capacities, probably most famous for, uh, you know, in the the past Seahawks Super Bowl, shouting Malcolm Go, setting on Malcolm Butler, right before Malcolm Butler has that, you know, famous interception of Russell Wilson on the goal line, ensuring the Pats, uh, you know, fourth Super Bowl of, of the Tom Brady, Bill Belichick era. Um, Flores then went on to coach the Miami Dolphins for three seasons, where he took over a moribund team uh, that was tanking, which means like they were intentionally trying to lose in order to gain draft picks. Um, unfortunately, he was like too good at his job and they ended up winning more games than they had wanted to uh, over the, like he made the playoffs last year. He had back-to-back winning seasons for the first time since I think 2003, 2004 Miami and was all around like regarded universally as um, an overwhelmingly successful coach. And it seemed to be a, a coach that was not only on the rise, personally and professionally, but was also taking the Dolphins team and franchise on kind of the upward trajectory over the past few years. He was stunningly fired. Uh, and there was, you know, some reason that came out, some reasons, based on personality conflicts between Flores and the front office. But, uh, you know, everyone kind of thought that Flores would land on his feet pretty quickly, that like every other franchise that was looking for a head coach would, you know, jump at the opportunity to hire a, a young guy that already demonstrated such a, a path of trajectory of success. Um, and then it comes out that Flores is going to, not only is he not going to get one of these openings, but he is suing the NFL, I said previously, alleging um, while the, like the allegations against the NFL were not shocking. These are things that you and I talked about when we talked about the the John Gruden situation only a few months ago. These are things that have been up up until like the most recent hiring cycles, like in a, in a league that is 70% black, Mike Tomlin of the Pittsburgh Steelers was the only black coach. Um, with that said, like um, Lovey Smith was just hired in Houston um, and the new coach of the Dolphins is actually biracial. So that, that has changed slightly in the last week or so, but it, it, the, the point really still stands that in the league that's 70% black, we have, you know, less than 10% of the coaching staffs are, are black. So like, it's not that these issues were new, but Flores' lawsuit from someone on the inside and someone that is coming with receipts we can maybe talk about those receipts if you want uh it was it's it's fascinating and and, you know it's going to be really interesting to see like how this plays out legally uh but what were your initial reactions to the lawsuit um well i think i had to start with yeah as you said the the mind-blowing nature of of his firing um the dolphins franchise has I mean, they haven't been as bad as maybe the Browns and the Lions over the last two decades, but they've been, you know, bottom five, I'd say, in the league in terms of just not being competitive. And here's a guy that that comes in with a terrible team and in two years has them in back-to-back winning seasons. Of the seven coaches that were that have been fired to date in the NFL offseason, he's the only one with a winning record. And the next closest guy to him is Mike Zimmer, who was eight and nine. And Zimmer's been in, in Minnesota with a mediocre team for like a decade. So, uh, I mean, that that in and of itself, I mean, he went on, I think, like a seven or eight game winning streak in the middle of the season, like really had the Dolphins defense playing. He's a defensive guy to, to an extraordinarily high level. 
Um, and it's, yeah, it's just like, you know, sometimes you, you see players or like quarterbacks and stuff that can't get jobs. And, and then you also see some of the quarterbacks that are out there starting and you're, you're, it's like, it's baffling in a league that is, you know, the, the talent at the top is something sort of special, but there's kind of like a lot of middling teams. And he seemed like a guy who was on his way to kind of turning around a franchise and it, yeah. And I can't imagine how frustrating it is for him. Um, and on the outside looking in, it's just like, it doesn't, it doesn't add up. Of course, you know, not, not making the playoffs this year, you can, you could certainly make some arguments for why, and clearly there was some friction with the front office and you can make some arguments for why, but, you know, on the surface of it, in terms of just like a wrongful termination suit, I think he would have a, I think he would have a case that like it, obviously it, it doesn't work that way in the NFL, but I mean, in any other sort of workplace, some guy who's clearly doing above average work, um, getting, getting fired for cause is a, is a, would be a tough thing to sell. I think, um, in terms of his lawsuit, uh, you know, this, this, the specific nature of his lawsuit is, is essentially that um, several teams, I think the Broncos, um, the Giants in this case, which is the head coaching job that he was going after, and I think he named one other team, were basically, he accused them of bringing him in for interviews to satisfy the Rooney rule. So we talked a little bit about the Rooney rule um, when uh, sort of the Gruden fiasco came up, and the Rooney rule was put in place to essentially ensure that um, at least at the very least that um, for coaching positions that minority candidates were being considered. So it basically required, I'm not sure, is it relegated only to the head coaching position or is it up and down the, up and down the board? Do you know? Good question. Yeah, I do. So it, the Rooney Rule was adopted in 2003. It's named after Dan Rooney, who was the former Pittsburgh Steelers owner, who was the chairman of the diversity committee at the time. And at that point, it was only focused on head coaches. And so it required, as you mentioned, like that every team with a head coaching vacancy had to interview at least one or more diverse candidates before making their hire. In um, that obviously was to prevent the situation of you just kind of recycling the same old candidates. Um, over time, the league has amended the rule. So in 2009, the policy was expanded to include um, general manager jobs and other like front office equivalents. If you had to hire, uh, you had to interview at least one diverse candidate. And then in 2020, uh, the, the NFL owners approved like a, another amendment to the rule that um, provided uh, like rewarded teams for developing minority talent that like went on to become either head coaches or general managers. Um, and then finally last, just last year, the NFL approved changes to require every team to interview at least two external minority candidates for open head coaching positions and at least one external candidate for coordinating positions. So the rule has expanded um, in the two decades since it's been around. Okay. So, so yeah, so there, I mean, there's been some evolution of the rule, but, but essentially what Brian Flores is, is saying is that many of these teams are only abiding by the letter of the law and not the spirit. So they have, 
in, in the case of the New York Giants and previously in the case of the Denver Broncos, he feels that he was brought in for interviews after the fact, after they had already basically come to terms and named their head coach internally, they're bringing him in for an interview so they can check the boss. Um, he cited in the past, he had an interview with uh, John Elway of the Broncos and he said Elway came in and, and the rest of his team came in completely hung over from a night before. And he ended up losing that, that head coaching position to Vic Fangio who was just fired. Um, in, in this case, of course, uh, Patriots fans will will know that um, that Bill Belichick may have tipped off Brian Flores um, in thinking that it's it's a little bit confusing if Bill just texted the wrong person or if he heard the name Brian and assumed that it was Brian Flores getting the position because as you said you know there have been few coaches that have been doing as well as Brian Flores has been at the Dolphins for the past two years or three years um, that he texted Brian Flores saying, you know, congratulations. And Brian Flores hadn't, um, hadn't interviewed yet. And then, you know, shortly after he interviewed, it was discovered that it was not, or actually no bill informed him before his interview that, that the giants were going to name Brian DeBall as the, as the new head coach. So, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm super, I'm super happy that he's doing this. He's already recognized that like, he's basically going to be blackballed or blacklisted for this lawsuit as employees who sue their employers tend to, it tends to go that way that there, you can't really work out a working relationship afterwards. But I, I, in a, in the league and you already dropped the statistics where 70% of the players are black to have one black head coach is is an absolute joke. I mean, it just is, it is, it is what it is. (laughs) Yeah. So I don't, I don't disagree with that. I guess my, my problem, this is where I really want to kind of get into what I think is the meat of the issue is I don't doubt that Brian Flores was brought into this interview and probably interviews before he was hired for the Dolphins to check a box because the like these teams had to satisfy the minor, the Rudy rule. They had to bring in one diverse candidate. They bring in the diverse candidate, even though they have no intention of hiring this candidate. All right, we checked the box. We're good with the compliance. Now we can hire the actual person we want to, we want to hire. And that's infuriating. And like, I, I don't blame um, Brian Flores and any other minority candidate that had to go into something knowing that they had to spend their time and their energy, or you know, they were being brought in as, as just like a, a check the box candidate like not being a serious candidate I, I honestly i can't imagine like how frustrating that would be particularly for people that are incredibly well qualified and one of the things flores alleges in his um his his lawsuit is that many times these are former black coaches that like just don't get a second shot where we have white coaches that are recycled repeatedly and you know black coaches that maybe weren't as successful in their first stop just don't get another shot or black coaches that have been you know very successful coordinators for very many years are still not getting for whatever reason these roles while these younger white coordinators who've been successful for a much shorter period of time are getting these roles. And so again, I, I can't imagine the frustration on the, the part of these black candidates who seem to be at least as well qualified as, as the white candidates who are, who are not, you know, and these black candidates are not getting their jobs and not even getting like fair shake. With that all said, like, you know, is is Brian Flores most mad at the Giants for bringing him in? If, if he is, well, the Giants could have said, like, 
you know, we didn't want to bring you in. Like, like if we're being like, if the Giants could just be totally honest, they could have just said like, look, we want to go with Brian Dable. And so like, we're just going to hire that guy. We're not going to bring you in for the sham interview, whether or not it was a sham interview, Flores feels like it was, right? And so the Giants are only doing that, again, if if they did that as, as a way to check the box that the league is making them check. And so this is where I think my bigger problem is with like, the Rooney rule in general, like the Rooney rule is setting these minority candidates up to be used as these pawns and to be used just to check the box. Because if, if this Rooney rule didn't exist, then teams wouldn't have to bring minority candidates in for sham interviews. Of course, the other side of that coin is then well, maybe these teams wouldn't be bring, bringing minority candidates at all. And so I think that that's totally, that's totally fair. And I, I just like, this is, this is where it gets tricky for me where it's like, all right, we can all sit around and acknowledge that the lack of diversity in you know, NFL upper levels of coaching, upper levels of management and ownership is a big problem. But like the solution is much more difficult. Like even the Rooney rule, I think was, was clearly done with the best of intentions, but as Flores lawsuit is pointing out, teams are really abusing the, the Rooney rule. And, and it's actually, I think in some ways, hurting minority candidates because they're being brought in for these sham interviews. And so like some of the things that like Flores is looking for in his lawsuit, he says he wants to increase the influence of black individuals in hiring, increase the objectivity of hiring GMs, coaches, and coordinators, increase the number of black coordinators, incentivize the hiring of black GMs, coaches, and coordinators. Like these are all like worthy goals, not against any of those things, but I just don't know how you mandate teams to do those things in in a way like in a way that's i guess i don't even know how to say it like legitimate that that allows teams to make the best choices for their franchise yeah i guess uh i agree with flores's goals but i don't know what he would or what anyone wants the nfl to do to make those goals happen yeah, and I mean, and th- and this is this is like the tie-in, right, with affirmative action. Um, all right. Well, first things first. I think a huge part of the problem is that at the top of the league, the league owners are all white, except for Shad Khan in Jacksonville, and the part. Uh, shoot, I'm going to forget her name. The partial owner of the Buffalo Bills, um, Kim Pagora, right? Who's who's also not. Black. I mean, Shad Khan is from uh, originally its heritage is Pakistani, and I think she, hers is. Um, I'm, I'm not entirely sure where where she's from, but she's um, South Korean. Kim Pegula. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Um, so, like you know, right off the bat, if if ownership, if there's if there are no black people in the ownership circle you know, those are at the end of the day, the ultimate decision makers when it comes to GMs and GMs are then, you know, between them and the owners are hiring head coaches. The fact that we have no black ownership in the NFL is a problem. And unfortunately, like the only way to solve that may be something like forcing a partial divestiture. You're seeing a lot of CEOs of Fortune 500 companies now being forced to diversify their boardrooms and they can't have all white people in the in the boardrooms anymore so they need to add all white men I should say so they're trying to add women they're trying to add minorities and 
And this is, this is affirmative actions, big problem because people will say, well, all of a sudden you're, you're no longer a meritocracy. But I think the reality that we have to accept is that it's never been a meritocracy, right? Because if it was a straight meritocracy, I don't think you could say that you would end up with a hundred percent like white head coaches in the league. I mean, there, there are a few, few exceptions, but the fact that you have no black head coaches in a league with 70% black players means that whatever system it is today is not the meritocracy that you think it might be if we got rid yeah. of affirmative action. So how do you change that? I, I think I'd be the first to say that I don't think affirmative action is like the most elegant of solutions for this problem. But the reality of the situation is that doing nothing is not, is not fixing anything clearly. And you know, now we have, we have a little bit of like transparency. And so that can put some pressure in certain places, but I think at the end of the day, like you are unfortunately just going to have to mandate some of this stuff if you want to see changes. And I wouldn't, you know, I, I don't, I don't disagree. I mean, you'd like to see these, these um, teams put forth like, Hey, our hiring committee from now on is going to be representative of former players and they're going to be, and they, and they will come from the diverse backgrounds that our teams has come from. And, and we'll see where that gets us. Like you want to think that some of these teams would do this on their own because clearly they're not getting the outcomes that that's, that should be representative of a league as, di- as diverse as, as the NFL, like what they're doing is not getting to that outcome. And so if, if we have to tip the scale to me, it's not that the Rooney rule is, you know, forcing these jerk off interviews. And so then therefore the rule is the problem. I like, I, to me that the, there's something wrong with how the league goes about the hiring. And, and so I'm, I'm all for different solutions. I'm not even sure, you know, what Brian Flores is proposing will, will be the right solution, but it's a, it's a start. But I think my issue is that I don't also, I don't think he has a solution to it. Like all of the things that I mentioned that are his goals, I think we could all sit here and say that like, yeah, like we're, we're all on board with those goals. But even when you say mandating, it's like, so the NFL right now has mandated all of these teams to interview minority candidates. But what's happened, obviously, and it's happened for years, like and we've all known is like that man, that mandate is just like leading to sham interviews, which I think is, as I mentioned earlier, is equally, if not more damaging to minority candidates in just the way like that whole process works. I think that, that's a joke. And so like, what do you mandate? Like, do you, I, I think anything farther than that is getting pretty dangerous in terms of interfering with how private people run their businesses, right? Like we're in a mandate, you hire a minority coordinator. Like we're in, we're in a mandate that you have a minority coach or minority general manager. Like that doesn't seem right to me at all. Right. And so I, I agree like that. What is the alternative? Just throw up your hands. And that doesn't seem right either. And so I guess like for me, I guess I hope that it's more organic. And, and, and again, I think you can rightfully point out that like, well, if it's organic, it's, it's not happening fast enough at all. And if it, and if it's organic, it's not happening at all. The Rooney rule doesn't get in the way of that. Right. Like if it was going to be organic, the Rooney rule is not making that more difficult. If anything, it should be making it just as- no. I I, dis- I disagree because like if the Rooney Rule didn't exist, then 
theoretically, every candidate you're bringing in has a legitimate shot at the job that you're interviewing them for. Yeah, but clearly the Rooney rule notwithstanding, they don't view black candidates as serious head coaching candidates. That's just the fact. That has nothing to do with the Rooney rule. Yeah, no, I, I, right, right, sure. I just don't think the Rooney rule like helps that perception at all. I, I guess so, I, you know, in the sense that all of these things, whether the Flores lawsuit or even just the, like, the general social consciousness, I, I, you know, you hope that it, it because it's more kind of in the mainstream dialogue that people are more aware of it, that there's more societal pressure on teams to conduct like legitimate, diverse um, hiring searches. And even like, as much as we criticize the NFL for like the lack of diversity in their coaching staff, you know, we talked about before, it's that it's really the hiring people that, that make a big difference. And, you know, in, in just in this cycle, um, the Bears hired Ryan, I don't know if I'm going to say these people's names, right, but Ryan Poles as their GM, and the Vikings hired Questy Adolfo Mensa as their GM. So we have two more um, Black general managers, which brings the total to seven Black general managers, which, again, is like still disproportionate to like the number of, of you know, black players in the league, but it's also a record high right now. And so that doesn't mean that these black general managers at all have to hire minority candidates. But I I think that we've kind of talked about before when you have the people that are in decision-making powers and are in the room of kind of the people that are interviewing these candidates, that gives the appearance at the very least that all candidates are going to be given a, a fair shake. And so in that sense, where the coaching, you know, seems to still be lagging at least we do see progress with the general managers and i think both you and i acknowledge that like that is a really important step towards getting candidates hired because of like on a true meritocracy regardless of their of their background yeah i mean i i i still think at the end of the day we are going to have to see some changes in ownership and some diversity at the at the highest level before the nfl starts to make real progress. I mean, you look at, you know, another pseudo comparable league, the NBA, which has it obviously another huge proportion of their athletes are also black. I think they're North of 40% in terms of black head coaches. They do have black ownership. Uh, You know, by all accounts, they're doing significantly better than the NFL with sort of a similar player base. Right. So like you would assume a similar amount of qualified candidates coming out of those teams are also getting head coaching jobs. Whereas this, you're just not seeing the same thing um, in the NFL. So maybe Goodell needs to take a page out of the NFL or the NBA commissioner's book and, and see what, what things they're doing can be, you know, brought over and implemented in the, in the NFL. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I hear what you're saying. I think it is, it is difficult and, you know, maybe this is sort of the right segue into affirmative action and, and, and Biden's Supreme Court pick, because it's it feels like if you're saying that such, such and such person has to come from a specific background, then you are limiting who you are choosing from and that you know, that irks people because it doesn't feel like the meritocracy that we've been promised. And yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, no, no case in point further than sort of the reaction to Joe Biden talking about fulfilling a campaign promise of 
putting a black woman um, as the next as an as the newest or latest Supreme Court justice to replace Stephen Breyer. Sure. So that campaign promise Biden made almost two years ago, made it um, in early March of 2020 in the first one on one uh, presidential debate. He said uh, kind of uh, unprompted um, when kind of asked about like their plans uh, for like running mates and Supreme Court justice. Um, Vice President at the time, Biden said, that, "Like if I'm elected president I'll, and, and I have the opportunity to appoint someone to the courts, I'll appoint the first black woman to the court. Um, and he also committed at that at that time to pick a woman uh, as his as his vice president, his running mate. Uh, I didn't like it at the time. I, st- I still don't like it now. Uh, my issue with it was not that there weren't plenty of qualified women to be his running mate, nor that there like there are plenty of qualified women to black women to sit on the Supreme Court. I just think that if he. If, Maybe this is just semantics. Maybe not. I'll be curious what you what you think. That like if he had if he hadn't made any of those pronouncements and, and then he had just picked Kamala Harris because he said she was she is the best candidate. I interviewed everyone. I interviewed Bernie Sanders and Pete Buttigieg and Elizabeth Warren and, and Kamala Harris and whoever else and said that ultimately Harris was the best candidate to be my running mate and later my vice president. And then if Biden went into this process of, of choosing and nominating a new Supreme Court justice and and interviewed justices, judges of all you know, genders and, and races and ethnicities and came out with one of like a, a black female justice to nominate. I think to me that resonates a lot more just as like these are pe- these people are just the best at what they do, because like there are plenty of people, like I said, that are qualified, plenty of black women that are qualified to sit on the Supreme Court. But I, I, it does bother me, quite frankly, that like he's narrowed it down, that it's only going to be chosen from amongst these people. I think it says like, the whoever gets nominated is perhaps the best black woman that that's possible, but is the best candidate. I don't know. He only looked at black women. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think there's a, a little bit of truth in what you're saying in that by explicitly saying, I'm only going to look at black women. He's, he's also unfortunately put the new Supreme court justice in a bind but I, will, I'll, I guess I'll say two things. One, I don't think it would matter. If he nominated a Black woman, regardless of whether or not you could make an argument that objectively out of all of the possible Supreme Court candidates, she is going to be the best one. I mean, you know, w- w- like we can't even argue, you know, you can't even tell me who the best NBA player is today without getting a huge argument right there there are always going to be people who think somebody else is better. That's one. Two, as a black woman, regardless of whether he said he was going to pick a black woman, as soon as he picks a black woman, everybody's going to say, well, the only reason you picked her is because she's a black woman. And so you're playing the identity politics. Right. So that's those to, to me, like he doesn't as, as much as I wish he didn't come out and say it because that like, explicitly says that he's not considering anybody else. Um, I think no matter what the reaction would have been the same or similar. And then my second problem is that the the nomination of the Supreme court justice is always going to be a political game, right? You said that he kind of said it at a time where it like seemed out of place. I think he said it like in the run up to South Carolina, where he kind of knew that he needed 
a lot of black support to win that state. And he was kind of down in the primaries heading into that state. And so like, you know, getting his endorsement from Clyburn at the time, like this wasn't just a, a flute that he decided at, at that specific time to say that. And, and I don't, I don't blame him. It's, it's a, it was a way to ensure that he was going, I mean, it was a way to garner support and, you know, he's not alone in that. If you look at, if you look at Trump's nominations, I mean, the fact that they were all white is no surprise. His base would have been upset with him had he chosen someone who was not white, probably. Um, It is also no surprise that they all have very similar views on abortion, right? Like those, that certainly also limits the pool that he was choosing from as he chose a Supreme Court justice. Now, he maybe he didn't say that I'm only going to choose someone who is anti-abortion, but, you know, his evangelical base would have been very upset with him had he chosen anybody who was waffling on that issue. So, right, like there are tons of different ways that we discriminate and weed out candidates. This one just happens to be one that gets people super charged up because it feels... Yeah, it feels specific to race, but in I think the reality is we consider race sometimes explicitly, sometimes implicitly, and that's and and the fact that is unfortunately the Supreme Court justice picks are always going to be political. Like Amy Coney Barrett, I think very qualified, but again, I, I think even you would are you you would be hard pressed to say that she was the most qualified in her field if yeah, only sure. because. So young, she couldn't have the qualifications that some of the older conservatives in their 50s and 60s would have because she just hasn't been alive long enough to like wrap those up. But part of his calculus is that I want someone who's going to be there for 30, 40 years. And so she had to be young, right? Like she had to be a woman because she was replacing Ginsburg. And you didn't hear anybody say when, at least I didn't hear someone say like, oh, that's a horrible thing to have to do that now you're going to replace that you're only relegating yourself to to women when you're picking a replacement for justice ginsburg and i think i I like i i don't personally have a problem with what biden did i kind of wish he was like at least a little bit more tactful about it uh but i yeah i don't know that i have an issue with it and i thought about it because when i first heard the tweet um from Ilya shapiro i was like, oh man, these guys really just got to get off Twitter because they're not saying what they mean to say. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Should we, let's, let's talk about him a little bit. You want to introduce? Sure. So Ilya Shapiro um, was someone who is, uh, I don't know what you just said, it kind of uh, is a uh, like conservative libertarian thinker um, who was recently hired for a position at Georgetown Law School. Um, he tweeted, as Rookie uh, mentioned just a couple weeks ago, February 1st, he tweeted, uh, objectively, the best pick for Biden is Sri Srinivasan. Srinivasan. It's, it's a hard one. <laughs> there you go, Ricky. Um, he says, quote, even, even has identity politics benefit of being first Asian Indian American, but alas, doesn't fit into latest intersectionality hierarchy, so we'll get a lesser Black woman. Thank heaven for small favors, question mark. And Shapiro apologize i think he he and i would say most rational even libertarian conservative even people that agree with like his message agree that that wasn't well phrased and 
certainly as Ricky, you just mentioned, like trying to get a point so complicated across on Twitter and whatever, 240 characters you get is just a foolish idea. And someone that's as smart as him should know better at this point. But I think his point is what my point was too, is that like, there are, there are numerous candidates that would be excellent Supreme court justices. And, you know, that, that might, it might be all sorts of, of, of minority candidates, whether we're talking about um, women or Asians or Indians or, uh, you know, or black people or, or Hispanics or like all sorts of people that like could be qualified for it. But Biden has limited to a black woman. And this is where another Supreme court justice like Clarence Thomas has consistently said, and you kind of alluded to this argument earlier, where it's like, not only does this affirmative action like hurt the groups that are like kind of quote unquote being discriminated against, like namely like white people, but in some cases, Asian people, which we'll get into shortly. Uh, But it also hurts like the people that are being benefited from affirmative action because Thomas is obviously speaking as a black man who's ascended to the highest levels of the judiciary that you always have, you're always being forced to wonder, am I only here because I'm a minority? Right. Like the, it's the only reason I got here is because, you know, white people prop me up and use me as like the affirmative action to make them feel better about themselves to like kind of to um, remedy some of the past like, like racial discrimination that this country has inflicted upon you know black Americans, women in this country, other minorities in this country. And you don't get to feel like you would if you are just a, you know, a white person who ascends to the Supreme Court. You get to feel, which is not true, but like, hey, I just made it here on my own merits. Whereas a black justice ascend to us who ascends to these high levels of government has to feel, has to at least have that question in the back of their minds. Am I only here because I, of, of my race or of my gender or because of affirmative action? And in that point, Thomas has been consistent for 30 years in the court that like these policies of affirmative action har- harm black folks in, in, in ways that white folks don't consider. Yeah. And I, I and I, and I totally I totally take that um, point as true. And, and I think, I think the reality of the situation, or I think the way that I think about it is that affirmative action is not actually intended to help the people who get put into these positions because of affirmative action. Affirmative action is essentially our method for trying to undo two plus centuries of systemic racism. And what that means is that the next generation now will have people in the positions that our current generation didn't have before to say that, hey, someone who looks like me can actually do that job, right? Like, I mean, I have I have some choice words about Clarence Thomas and uh, how well he's been doing his job. But, <laughs> but I think this kind of forced representation is is by design something that is trying to undo generational harm or systemic injustices in a way that like you did there really no other way to do it unfortunately a byproduct is a there are going to be some people who get into positions and always have their sort of merit questioned um and sometimes rightfully, right? Like it's it's not necessarily that some people aren't getting put into positions that they don't have business being put into. And the other byproduct is that there'll be some white people who also are eminently qualified who are going to be put aside. And I think the sort of the tacit agreement within affirmative action is that this is this is like a necessary evil because we don't have a better method for trying to undo the system that we're in. 
I will, I do want to share one quote with you that I got uh, just kind of Googling this story. I was trying to figure out if he had said any stuff about previous justice uh, nominations um, in the past. I couldn't find anything about Barrett, certainly nothing about Kavanaugh, uh, just in terms of this like quotable nature. I'm, I'm sure he had plenty of thoughts on both of those. But in 2009, um, he's quoted as saying, in picking Sonia Sotomayor, President Obama has confirmed that identity politics matter to him more than merit. While Judge Sotomayor exemplifies the American dream, she would not have been on the short list if she were not Hispanic, right? So this is something that he said 10 or 12 years ago. And unfortunately, one, to me, it kind of affirms what I was thinking in that it didn't matter that Biden promised to do this, whether, whether or not, like, no matter what, if he goes on to pick a Black woman, especially from the right, he will hear that, like, the only reason that he picked her is because she's Black and she's a woman. Um, un- unfortunately, I don't think that there's, like, getting around that, but we have to put these, like, I, th- I think that that, I mean, we've talked about this before, and I know that, that you feel the same way, that representation matters. And unfortunately, I'm just not sure we have a better way of getting there. And it, it may lead to some messy, less than ideal outcomes in the short term. Yeah, I, I, I will say, I don't, I don't, I, I totally agree with that last part you just said. It's funny, we were actually talking about the judicial branch today in, in sixth grade and like kind of introducing what it was. And we showed, I showed a picture of the Supreme Court from like the early 1900s and then show the Supreme Court today. It was kind of just like, all right, what do you notice? And of course, the, the first thing people point out is that like, well, it's all white men in the first picture. And in this picture, you know, we have, you know, we have three women, we have a black man, we have the Hispanic woman, like, right. And I think those are in, you know, I, I mentioned that like Biden has made the promise that we assume he's going to uphold to nominate the first black woman to the Supreme Court. And you know, one of the guys said, does anybody have any thoughts on that? And one of the girls raised her hand and said, do you think that's going to make other black women feel like they could also do that? And I was, it was just like a really, you know, when kids are asked like really legitimate, in, like innocent type questions. And I was like, yeah, I, I think that it probably will, <laughs> you know? And, and even if, even if all of the justices on, the, on like the kind of the federal circuit or at the upper levels of the state courts, like even if they know intuitively, like they're qualified like to do that job, it matters seeing someone do, you know, and, and knowing that like, it's absolutely reality that could happen. So yeah, I totally agree with that, but you brought up one thing about, you know, affirmative action being kind of the accepted necessary evil for the last you know, 60 years in our country. Well, we'll have to see if that, if that, if that, that, that is still the accepted necessary evil going forward, given that the Supreme court has agreed to hear these affirmative action cases against Harvard and the university of North Carolina system. Um, these two cases, which are going to be joined together, uh, a case brought against Harvard University and a case brought against the University of North Carolina system, uh, challenging the affirmative action problem, policies uh, of admission policies of those schools. And so the Harvard one is the one that gets the most attention because obviously it's Harvard. But the fact that the court has joined both the Harvard case and the North Carolina case together essentially means that what the court rules in these cases is going to apply to both private universities through the decision on Harvard and public universities through the decision, um, you know, regarding North Carolina. And what the groups who brought first brought suit against Harvard and against North Carolina, and these suits have been ongoing for years at this point. I think they were first brought back in 2014 and they've been 
you know, challenged and, and appealed and rewritten, and it's finally made its way up to the Supreme Court. Uh, but these are suits brought by Asian Americans um, alleging that Harvard violated Title VI of the Civil Rights Act by, by, by penalizing Asian American applicants, and, um, and that New, the North Carolina violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment by discriminating against white and Asian applicants. Essentially, like if you had to kind of boil it down, like take out like the legalese of it, the argument is that through the affirmative action policies that exist at places like Harvard and North Carolina, qualified Asian American students, particularly in the case of Harvard, or qualified white and Asian students in the case of North Carolina, are being denied admission to these colleges in favor of students largely of black, black and brown minorities who are being given admission into those into these universities uh, through their affirmative action policies. Both systems acknowledge that they use race as part of their admission policies. They use they argue that they use race as one of many factors, um, including you know, socioeconomics and ethnicity and language and high school and grades and recommendations and parents and sports and uh, extracurriculars. Like, they say that it's one of many factors that these colleges are using to promote a diverse student body. Uh, that's kind of what, what what's on the line here of, of like, is that a legitimate way? Can colleges and universities use race as a factor in determining who gets admitted to their universities? It is, it is notable. It is one of many notable cases in front of the Supreme court over the next few months. Uh, because it looks like we're going to have a change. Um, Ricky, as you know, we, had, we had mentioned earlier, you said that the affirmative action, while most, if not everyone, will acknowledge that it's not a perfect or even you know, a great remedy for the systemic inequalities that have existed because of the structural racism that existed for hundreds and continues to exist in, in our country. Um, but it, 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 it's been, it has been the, the main tool to try to diversify upper levels of education, higher education. And it appears likely to me that that is no longer going to be an option for colleges and universities in the next, after the next few months. What are your thoughts? Yeah. I mean, based who's on the Supreme court, I would not be surprised to see affirmative action overturned. Um, I think it's, I think it's, I think it's a mistake. I think it's, I mean, all right. So I guess, you know, backing up for a second, the idea or, or, or sort of what we think is a problem in our society is that we have inequities between racial groups that seem to persist largely because there's like a cycle of, uh, there's just kind of underrepresentation across all sorts of levels of government across uh, high levels in business across uh, sort of major positions in the healthcare industry and sort of across the board, we have a situation where one group of people, particularly black and Latino people tend to, be underrepresented in kind of the upper echelons of society, right? Across the board. Affirmative action was a way to take a crack at 
sort of solving this problem. Um, you know, to your earlier point, it doesn't feel right to mandate uh, businesses to hire, you know, specific people just based on their race. And so, you know, where are we going to find the place to make this change happen? And we've sort of decided that, okay, education is what we feel like gives people the credentials to get these positions. Let's make sure the broadest variety of people can get that education and affirmative action has been necessary to improve kind of that the like the likelihood that black and brown people would get hired into these positions and we'd start to see some of that upward mobility so that it was you know more in line with how you know the proportion of black and brown people in this country um, would be better represented across the the socioeconomic spectrum than you know where it is today. <clears throat> um, I'm gonna let you jump in here in a second. I think the other thing, the problem that I have with these cases, if it is viewed as discriminatory to uh, not let in, so what in you know in the in the case of Harvard. I think the Asian students that brought these cases for, I have a 4.0, I have over a 4.0 GPA, I have perfect SAT scores. Um, like on paper, there is nobody better than me. How could I not be let into these schools? I think on the flip side, and I think what the universities have been saying is that our job is not specifically to have a class of perfect SAT score students or perfect GPA students are like the, the, the whole purpose of our admissions process is to have a diverse set of students because we think that everybody learns more when people come from different backgrounds and they come from different places. And potentially that means different levels of achievement at the high school level. Um, but that is okay because we're fostering the academic environment that we want and that we think is best for all of our students. And so I'm also, you know, sort of surprised that conservatives may not be on the side of the universities here saying, especially Harvard being a private university saying, well, you're, you know, private business for profit college, do whatever you want. Well, that's certainly the way, uh, you know, I, I kind of, that, that's the argument that I would be a proponent of, but let me, let me give the, 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 the other main conservative argument. There's actually, there's actually two other main arguments. I say the first one, and this is why I think that affirmative action is going to end in the next few months is because Roberts, Thomas, and Alito have been consistently against affirmative action since each of the three have been on the court. I would be shocked if Gorsuch wasn't the same way. And then all you, all you need is either Kavanaugh or Coney Barrett to kind of go that way as well. And so what's been held up, the, the what these cases are asking the court to overturn is a 2003 University of Michigan decision, Grutter v. Bollinger. Um, in that decision, it was a 5-4 decision, but uh, Justice O'Connor wrote it. And she said that she holds that like student, that like schools have a compelling interest in having and trying to like have a diverse student body. And that, that's kind of your argument. And that's what the argument of, of even the school, the schools are today. 
Um, I, I think the the lawyer for Harvard just said that um, you know when you when admission systems take into account like race as one factor amongst many, it's become like kind of a, a part of like the fabric of our society in that. Most Americans value racial and ethnic diversity, and they want programs that support diversity on college campuses. And I don't think that's wrong, but I guess like the argument that the Supreme Court have has kind of made against that, and this is like a, a very famous uh, Justice uh, uh, Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts wrote in this 2007 case, it was uh, like parents involved versus Seattle, which is about Seattle's public schools, and he said famously, the way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. And this is essentially the conservative argument is that like, look, and again, I'll, I'll, you know, obviously welcome to respond in a minute, but in his, in his majority opinion, Justice Roberts cites Brown v. Board. And he says the whole point of Brown v. Board was to say that the 14th Amendment protects all people equally regardless of race. And if you are discriminating against people based on their race, you know, obviously for, you know, hundred years, hundred plus years, we're discriminating against like black school children on the basis of their race. But even now, if we're discriminating against white children or Asian children on the basis of their race, if they're being denied the equal protection of the laws, being denied the equal opportunity to matriculate to schools like Harvard or North Carolina because of their race, then that is also in violation of the 14th Amendment. And you are discriminating against people on the basis of race. And essentially, if you don't want to discriminate on the basis of race, then we shouldn't take race into account at all. Yeah, I, I, I definitely heard that. And so it's, it's such a sexy soundbite and it absolutely just completely disregards the reality of the situation that like our society is in. It, it would be great if we could just erase, you know, generations of, of systemic inequities and just say, let's start fresh. And now there's no problem. We don't need to consider race because there's no racism anymore. Unfortunately, it just doesn't work like that. And so affirmative action is explicitly a policy that's intended to tackle this issue. And so if the issue still exists, you can't just say, well, affirmative action is the racist part. Like that's that's not the problem with our society. I mean, you can argue that that's not the solution to the problem. I think that's fine. And maybe there are better ones out there, which I would love to talk about. But attacking affirmative action as if it adds in more segregation, it doesn't. It's ensuring greater diversity at the schools, A. B, it just, it doesn't, yeah, it, it, it's like, it, it's not, Affirmative action for me is not the problem. And I do recognize that it means that very well-qualified people are going to be kept out of some of these institutions, but they're going to be fine. They're going, if they are that qualified, if not going to Harvard is not going to kill them. But for somebody who comes from a lower income background, going to Harvard may be that once in a lifetime opportunity that's going to change their lives. And so this is I think, yeah, the, I mean, at the end of the day, what what is the court opening themselves up to if you say that you can no longer uh, factor in race? So right now, colleges are considering, right? So over the pandemic, many of them have said SAT is optional, ACT is optional. Like, we're, we're not really going to look at that or we don't have to take that into account if you don't want us to. 
that to me is a way of saying we think affirmative action may be taken away. And so that means if, you know, if we have to look at everybody's SAT scores, then we can't take somebody who's got a 1410 over a 1580. Well, all right, fine. Then we just won't look at SAT scores. And so now do we want to be hampering colleges from trying to figure out, I just, I don't, I don't think it's the outcome that people want really. Um, And I understand for those particular students who did everything right in high school, who like, you know, they were told if I get the perfect scores and I get the A grades and I do all these extracurriculars, like I'll get to go to Harvard because that's my dream. And Harvard's saying, well, yeah, you did all that, but we're looking for, for someone else. I'm like, I'm, I'm sorry. I think that those people will, will be fine. It's not, it's just not the same kind of discrimination that we have been talking about. And yeah, it, it's also, the thing is, I don't think they would want to go to Harvard if it was all like carbon copies of them. If it was only the kids that were getting 1600s on their SATs and, and straight A's I've, and for all from the same family background and stuff, that would be such a disappointing experience. And really like the problem with our, even our schools today is that we don't have enough diversity across other lines in addition to race, right? Like ideological or whatever, like it's these opportunities, these kind of discussions that are going to move us forward. And that starts, unfortunately, with just getting different types of people. And part of that is race today. It's like affirmative action to me is not a policy forever, but until we get some, you know, until we get a society that looks more proper, I think you need it. And I think, and we're like, we're the, there needs to be an alternative. You can't just scrap it and say, without it, we're better off and we're not, not going to do anything else. Yeah, it's an interesting point that you made about like affirmative action doesn't have to be forever because in her opinion, in the Greta v. Bollinger Michigan case that I brought up earlier, um, Justice O'Connor said that um, race conscious admissions must be limited in time and that the court expects that 25 years from now, the use of racial preferences will no longer be necessary to further the interest approved today, right? And so 25 years, I mean, that was 20 years ago. And I... Uh, Justice Thomas, who's obviously still sitting on the court, kind of scoffed at 25 years. But he said, yeah, you're damn right in 25 years. We're not going to be doing this anymore. And I mean, he's right. But I, I do think like the problem, Ricky, I don't, I don't disagree with you, but like to keep saying like it's not going to have to be forever. I think someone like a Thomas is saying, well, then like, well, that should stop. Like we can't just keep saying, hey, 40 years after the Civil Rights Act, now 20 years later, now another 20 years, like we're just going to keep at some point, like things are never going to be equal. So we just have to live with that and, and not keep trying to like force these policies that are unconstitutional. So that's, I mean, that's a good question, right? Like when do we feel like we've made enough progress? And for me, yeah, I mean, as a minority, personally, I never, I would never expect to see as many Indians in a place as there were white people or, or whatever. I, th- I think we could agree on some kind of balance across, you know, it just, just like a normal amount of representation based on the representation of the, of different races within society. I mean, the fact that we have like 
you know, like we said, one head coach in the NFL, one, uh, one Supreme court justice right now out of nine, I guess that's close to, you know, closer to 15 to 20%, but like there are, I don't think that there is a, a, a moment that you could point to, but, but you know, just overall what those achievement rates are and how that is split up. Like the rates of poverty within black and brown communities are far, far exceed those of of white communities. And it's not that we're saying, okay, we need to completely eliminate them, but it should be just more proportional. And we're not there. We have made hardly any progress in the last like 20. Well, that's not true. We've made progress, but not, not, I don't think you could say enough progress because we like that, that data is available. And I I think by any benchmark, we're not a more equal society. Like equal should mean that everyone is equally able to progress upward as they are downward. And that's kind of the ideal, but we're just not there yet. Um, And so it just, it feels too soon to get rid of it if you don't have an alternative. Yeah. And I think this is where the problem becomes somewhat intractable. And this is where I, I've mentioned Thomas a million times here, because I think he's so fascinating on this issue where he's someone that has largely seemed to accept that you know, prejudice and discrimination and racism is just kind of inherently a part of, and is going to be a part of American society. And so his solution is not to do affirmative action. It's just kind of acknowledge that it exists and, you know, everyone like works hard independently to try to succeed sometimes in, in spite of those, those odds. Um, not saying that's the right answer, but that is an answer. And I, I do think like when we run up to like, if, if we all acknowledge that this problem exists, no matter where we fall on the spectrum, and I think the vast majority of people would acknowledge that it's a problem. The question becomes, what, if anything, are we going to do about it? And I, I, well, I, I think that's where it becomes really hard. I think, well, I think that's the problem, right? Though for, we can all acknowledge that it's a problem, but it impacts different groups differently and the the unfortunately white people who are and and asian high achievers and in many cases are the ones who are feeling penalized by this process yeah again it's it's hard for me to to look at the like to to look at this and say what the what the true penalty is because I think those high achievers tend to achieve highly wherever they go. And the idea that, Oh, if you don't go to Harvard, you're not going to like be able to live a successful life is, is ridiculous. I think it, I think that's true for, for anybody. Um, But particularly those students who think that they have done everything. And so they earn and they deserve it. And we know like, in employment, just because you're the best candidate doesn't mean you get the job. That's a reality of how we allow our businesses to operate. I don't know why our schools would be any different. I mean, that to me, like if, if you just like clip that soundbite, that to me sounds like an argument for a pure meritocracy that like, hey, in that people get jobs and get admitted to different places for different reasons. And we all know that people get jobs because of who they know or like previous experiences or like a million different reasons, same thing for education. Like we know people get into colleges 
for you know many different reasons, like we shouldn't have these kind of mandated policies in place that like force schools or teams or employers to hire certain people because we feel badly about how we have treated those people in the past. Yeah, but it it still it does not like we have to make progress on our current situation because otherwise the protests of last year are going to happen more frequently as people start to realize that the the game is not fair and it's not a pure meritocracy and it doesn't nobody starts with a clean slate everybody starts with the you know where their parents left off and and who their parents were and who their parents knew and so because of all of that we have to do something and again I think it's fine to think that affirmative action is not the right solution, but the idea that we say like, Oh, we just recognize that there's discrimination because we all know about it. We'll like try and do something about it. The problem has to be addressed at a systemic level because individuals making individual choices. Well, a clearly is not sufficient because we're not getting anywhere from you know, from the civil rights movement forward and, and B, there has to be this kind of macro level way to look at it. And college admissions is just, is one of those opportunities that we have to, to try and, and make some changes. And yeah, I like, I, and I, and I, and I hear what you're saying, but it's, it's just another one of those things where like the ideal is the meritocracy and that's what we should be striving for but you can't get there until, until it's actually a meritocracy, until everyone has the opportunity to put in the work and start from the same starting line. And if we're all starting from different places, then we have to be able to say like, hey, this person's 3.0 GPA is actually more impressive when you think about the fact that he was studying between working two jobs and raising his two younger brothers. Like that's just, I'm okay with that. I think that like, it's, yeah. And it, and it does mean that some people get left out and that's, that sucks, but it can't always be about the individual in this case, because we have to like figure this out as a society for the future of the society. Yeah. I guess that I would just say that if I was being consistent, I would leave it up to individual businesses, individual colleges, individual teams. And so I would not you know, enforce the Rooney rule or a strengthened version of the Rooney rule on NFL teams. And I would not force, you know, Harvard not to consider race. You know what I mean? I, I think you should be able to Harvard should be able to let should use whatever call qualifications and criteria they want to let people into their institution. And, and I think that that would be fine with me. And just like an NFL team should be able to use whatever criteria they want to hire their coaches and general managers. Um, I know that's not perfect. I know that you also know that like affirmative action, we've said it like that isn't perfect either. Uh, and that, that's, yeah, I guess it's just us coming out kind of on different, you know, just in different places on, on a, a problem that, that seems intractable in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll be interested to hear what the opinion is given that, it feels like the case itself is already decided. I hope Thomas gets to write it. 
Yeah, well, that will be, I mean, a, one that I'm sure that he's heard that, like, his placement, you know, he got nominated after Thurgood Marshall left, and there was a feeling that they had to replace Thurgood Marshall with a black judge. And, I mean, for a number of reasons, um, like, it's, it to me, it would be, particularly odd for Clarence Thomas potential beneficiary of something like affirmative action to be like, Oh no, like, yeah, it, it tainted me. And so I'm good with it getting rid of it, but I'm a sitting Supreme court justice because of it. And I, and I decide that it's no longer a valuable play. And I guess you could argue. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I don't agree with Clarence Thomas. <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't agree with this take, but to your point, I think Rosa Parks said that like Thomas was someone that had all the advantages of affirmative action, used those advantages, and then like went against it. Pretty much, I kind of like shut the door behind him. Um, not an argument I agree with, but I think is is an argument that is is fair to make. Um, whatever. Well, obviously, we'll see what happens. I think uh, I wouldn't be surprised if Roberts writes the opinion and and Thomas like writes a concurrence, pretty much just rallying against any type of affirmative action. But uh. I will say that one thing that we didn't have time to get into today and, but I think it's worth mentioning because this will probably come out before we address it again, is that there are, there's a litany of um, black female justices from whom uh, Biden can pick. And, uh, and while I, and maybe you as well, to a, to a lesser degree, disliked uh, how maybe he has went about announcing his choice, Whoever he announces, um, whoever the nominee is, is going to be eminently qualified for that position, and um, it's going to be, you know, a historic day. So I look forward, maybe at some point, whether it's whether we get a nominee or we get a short list of nominees, to diving into their qualifications because um, they certainly deserve uh, whatever th- those justices, whoever it's going to be, is going to deserve that nomination. Agreed. All right. I don't know. This was. It's funny that we, like, when we talked, we were, like, originally, like, this is, like, a good thematic episode because they're all kind of tied together. And I, that's definitely true. Like, we, I, we were to, like, weave them all together, but also just, like, tricky. Like, the, it's, it's, all, it's all the same issue, but um, not, obviously, there are no easy solutions or people would have come up with them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I think that that is... Um... That's definitely fair to say. All right. Well, good to be back. Finally. Indeed, sir. Till next time. Oh, actually, for the people, we have a great episode coming up. Our uh, repeat or round two of our draft. So stay, stay tuned for that one. We stay up all night on Garner Avenue Debating all the issues of the day No agenda, not yet Talking heads, running around till we forget where it was we began Some mornings you were away, some morning left your ego bruised But what I wouldn't give for 
hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds, because even though it did not share the pains we share, that American idea friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning buzz. Learn the hard way that to those who would die upon that hill, quiet truth is better than rain. Somewhere along the line, we seem to have forgotten the values sometimes being wrong. Some mornings you away, some morning let your ego bruise. But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. And folks of different minds, because though we didn't share. Opinions we share, loud American ideas. Friends made over arguments and an early morning buzz. I need an early morning buzz. There's hope behind the bluster, 'cause though Main Street may not sell, it's full of folks just like you and me. When we have trouble seeing the human for the politics. Trying to find a better way to disagree. Some days you win, some days you leave your ego through. But well, I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find and chase the lion's head. And folks are different minds because though we did not share opinions, we share that American ideal. Friends made over arguments. And an early morning buzz, oh, what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks are different minds because though we did not share opinions, we share that American ideal. Friends made over arguments and an early morning buzz. I need an early morning buzz.